With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Uh oh. Guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie. Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Woo-hoo! Leslie, guess what today is? Leslie, guess what today is? It's hump day. Hump day! Woo-hoo! <laughs> it's hump day. Hump day! This is the Donaldson Files. This is Tom Donaldson. I am where we're waiting for uh, our guest, Will Riley, to show up shortly. Uh, we're going to have a lively conversation dealing with what I call the scientific class. And the question that comes into play, we're going to attempt to answer, and this will be the part, this will be uh, a two-part uh, show, this, one, this Wednesday and next Wednesday. And what we're going to talk about is what I call the leadership class, and the scientific class is part of that leadership class. Are we seeing science being directed and biased toward the needs of the political class, or are we seeing science looking for truth? And that's the question we're going to ask. I'm Tom Donaldson, the chairman of America's PAC. I am also the project director and research associate, America's Majority Foundation the author of eight books, none of them yet bestsellers, but they all should be, including The Rise of National Populism and Democratic Socialism and uh, The Boxing and Shadows, which is the history of black boxers in the United States from the turn of the 19th, turn of the 20th century to the present. And uh, welcome, uh, Professor Riley, um, who is... Um, I'll tell you what, Professor, I'll let you give your own resume because you got a pretty good length of one. All right, thanks. I mean, I, I usually go with the short one on radio and TV appearances. I'm Will Riley. I'm a professor of political science at Kentucky State University, one of the uh, classic historically black colleges here in Frankfort, Kentucky. I'm also the author of the books Hate Crime, Hoax, and Taboo. Um, and as always, Tom, good to be on the show. Yes. Well, I'll tell you what we do. The reason why I wanted to show because is, I mean, I've been looking at the COVID. There's an article in Scientific America which I sent you, and I thought it was fascinating because it kind of details the you know the nastiness that's gone on with the COVID and and how it is that we're seeing censorship of articles. We're seeing you know, uh, you know scientists essentially being attacked if they go against the conventional wisdom, which in case of COVID ends up being true. And, and certainly you've been a researcher. I mean, the, you've researched, let's say, the lockdown on three different occasions, twice for us. Mm-hmm. But you're also an expert, I must say, one you know, who has a very good knowledge of crime statistics and 
and again, many of the things you have found in your book, Taboo, um, again, goes against the conventional wisdom that people hear repeatedly in the media. But it's the kind of, and, and I guess what I fear the most, and I know we've had this conversation in the past, is are we going to get to the council culture starts to the scientific community? Uh, you know, we, you know, we've seen in the COVID debate, uh, we've seen in the climatology debate, uh, we've seen it in, let's say, the crime and racial debate, uh, which you've been a party to. And are we getting to that point? That let's say folks like yourself fear you're going to be either a, I used the word council culture, but getting things published, being able to, you know, maintain a position at a university. If you dare to say something that runs not so much controversial, runs against the counter, against the conventional wisdom. And I know you, know, you I know you just, you did this today. I don't know. You've been doing this routinely where you basically come up with three truths. That oftentimes <laughs> bounce against the conventional wisdom. Well, that, that's something I'm going to start doing either every day or once a week. But no, I, I noticed the same thing you did, which is that science seems to be increasingly politicized. And this is, I know I often irritate people with the both sides of them, but this isn't necessarily a Republican or a Democratic thing. I mean, if you were to say science doesn't really show that prayer works, which is something that's debated. My conservative friends would be up in arms. If you were to say, this is a really obvious, funny recent finding, but science shows that if you are a sex worker on OnlyFans, you're more likely to be depressed. A lot of my liberal feminist friends would be up in arms. So I, I definitely think you're seeing science politicized, science used by people that have these political or social or feminist or whatever else points to make. Um, but what I started doing on Twitter was just saying crap that's absolutely uncontested, but that people get really, really angry and agitated about. So like the three posts today, um, one of them was the SAT does kind of measure how smart you are. Um, one of them was traditional Islam isn't feminist. And one of them was males and females are biologically different. And how are you, man? And yeah, all of those, like the, the males and females one got 158 likes, a uh, couple of sort of dislike responses, retweeted about 15 times. So the point there was very much, is there anything that's not contested? So, yeah, we have this issue with the political parties and with groups within the country trying to claim certain science of their own. We see this with masks a lot. Yeah. Well, let's go into the mask issue. Uh, and then we're going to go into the Scientific American. But. Uh, and again, I, I'm, 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 I view myself as agnostic, like yourself. I'll wear a mask, you know, in crowds. You know, when I, you know, plus, uh, in, plus in Iowa, or in Kentucky, you know, if you go to any grocery store, any drug store, if you go into the gym, uh, you know, it basically says wear a mask. <laughs> you know, you have to enter with a mask. And I don't, you know, I, I don't view this. I mean, in some ways, I don't get all that bent out of shape wearing the mask. Other than, I say, the only time I've had a, you know, it's like during Pilates, you know, where we're supposed to wear a mask during Pilates, and halfway through, I'm like, I can't breathe. <laughs> so I literally have to yeah. leave the room, go to another room, get a, get a deep breath, and go back in and work out and do the finish the workout. But, and, and I know that, you know, I, I'm, like I said, I'm agnostic. To me, I interpret the data as you might get a slight benefit from wearing a mask but certainly you know it's 
slight at best. Now, you had some very interesting interpretation of the Danish study because uh, you didn't come on and yeah. basically say what everybody else on my side was saying, they, our side, basically, it doesn't work. You, you did interpret the data that way. Could you kind of talk about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, so the masks thing, I, I pretty much word for word agree with you about masks. I mean, I wear them to make old ladies feel more comfortable. You know, one of the things about COVID that I've said every time I'm on the show, let's never minimize it, but the average victim is 82 or 83. So for me, or for that matter, for yourself, if you're talking about male former athletes under 65, like when I talk to my doctor, who's a friend of mine, I mean, my projected risk of death if I contracted COVID was about one in 8,000. So nothing to play with, but I, I wear that to make older people, people at risk feel comfortable. You can't always tell if a young person's at risk if they're diabetic or something like that. For you as the healthy person, um, I pretty much would agree with your analysis. And this, again, gets into politicized science. There's very little science that indicates that masks work at some high, remarkable level. I think we can say that. This Danish study that came out recently found there was, I'll just say it bluntly, there was no statistically significant effect of masking, for you at least. Meaning that if you put on a mask, you are not, there's no trackable mathematical evidence that that reduces how likely you are to get sick. Um, as I recall, 2% of people that didn't wear masks at all got sick during the study period, and 1.75% of those who did wear a mask every day got sick. So, I mean, again, I, I think it, that indicates, I mean, that's a full you know, quarter percentage difference, but it didn't reach significance, and the people who wore masks had to buy the masks and clean the masks, and so on. It, it's a slight positive effect. The issue with masking, though, is that masks have become kind of a talisman for the political left. So when I talk to friends about something that, I, again, I consider pretty obvious, which is that the giant George Floyd protests helped spread COVID, one of the responses is, well, but those people were good liberals, so they were masked up. And I, I think that's the level of kind of incomprehension here. Like if you are at a riot with 500,000 people and you're fighting a squad of 20,000 cops in the full Darth Vader riot gear, that's not a safe thing because you have a mask on. Like you're still 90% as likely to get COVID and you could get your head knocked down with a brick. So that idea of the mask is the totem, it's the symbol, it's what's making me safe, I, I really think is pretty silly. But you're seeing that a lot now. When you watch like CNN, people have masks on on the air before they go to the actual anchor desk. Like, is that necessary? Probably not. Yeah. Now, hold on to that thought. This is Tom Donson with uh, Dr. Will Riley here on the Donson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe radio broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Join Barry Barnes for Locker Talk on the Bachelor Pad Network as he presents NFL news and evaluates players Fridays at 9 a.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. Welcome back. This is Tom Donson. Donson Files with a special guest, Dr. Will Riley. This is part of a series we're going to be doing through the end of the year dealing with scientific class, are we witnessing the politicalization of science and what's the impact going to be? 
By the way, just a quick note here, ladies and gentlemen, there will be some changes on the Bachelor News Radio Network and on this show, which will include a new call-in number, and uh, we've got a new website that's going to be coming up shortly. Uh, so this, we're going to, so it's going to be really great. We're going to have some really good changes. You're going to love them. Uh, you're going to have to go on the Donaldson Files on Twitter at the Donaldson Files Parlor com for more information dealing with the changes coming up, including the call-in number. But tonight, the call-in number is 646-929-0130, 646-929-0130 if you want to call in, comment, or just simply say, the host, you're the greatest. Uh, all right. <laughs> okay, yeah, I mean uh, – Okay, I guess the yeah the, the thing with the mask to me is like I say I got I got the same interpretation you it you know you could get a slight benefit, but you know it, and it, and I, and the way I've always kind of viewed it because there's hundreds of studies out there and even if you look at the CDC's own guidelines for you know March of 2020, you know they were cautious on this idea of masks and when it's appropriate and most of them basically say. You know, you know the one group of people, as you stated, they, they encourage is if you're elderly, if you've got immune compromise, you might want to wear a mask to protect yourself. Uh, and certainly, I'm like I'm I'm with you. Uh, you know, I'm I'm 60. I'm in, I'm in my <clears throat> mid 60, so I'm at that point where maybe I should be wearing a mask, but I'm I view myself as relatively healthy. Uh, I swim, you know, work out every day. Yeah, and I. And so I don't, but yet, you know, I do wear a mask, you know, and again, they make everybody else around me feel comfortable. And maybe if I can reduce my, reduce my chance of getting a virus, my 1% is better than not getting the virus. I mean, who wants to get sick, right? Yeah. But, I mean, I think that that's, I think that's pretty much accurate. It, it, like I said, it sounds, sounds like we pretty much agree on masks. Like they, of course they do something, you know, not, not very much. The real issue with masks, so the thing that I keep returning to with masks is this blind politicized belief that this is the thing that shows you have virtue. So one of the things with the science around COVID-19 is that it's actually pretty contradictory, and this is really common with high-level science. So we, it's not like there's a situation where we've been consistently told to wear non-medical masks and like the conservatives are refusing. If you remember the start of COVID-19, Fauci and Burks and these other doctors came out and said, don't wear a mask. There's very little evidence. They do much. They can exacerbate conditions like asthma, and we need them for healthcare workers. Like, all of that stuff is still true. <laughs> the, the whole thing with masking, Democratic candidates began to use them as a symbol that they cared during the election season. If you remember Biden, Trump began holding these large rallies, and yeah. Biden responded by holding events where he actually had a pretty decent number of people, but they were sitting in these painted circles 12 feet apart. Yeah. You know, it's to show, like, I'm the COVID-aware candidate. And as this went on and as masks became the excuse for the riots being okay, the mask became kind of a symbol. Like, if you're outside without a mask, you want people to die. And the reality is that, like that lockdown paper I did for you guys, which is I mean, from the consideration I'm getting, it's a journal-level article. I think it's pretty solid. We both chipped in some data there. But what that actually finds is that there's very little difference between lockdown areas 
and areas where people do what you could call well-done social distancing, which actually is a thing. I mean, you give people four or five feet, you wash your hands, shower, you're in clean clothes, you have separate exits and entrances to buildings. If you do all that as versus locking down, there's not any difference in the first place in death rates because people spend more time in unhealthy, dusty environments and so on during lockdowns. Um, the masks on top of well-done social distancing don't seem to do all that much. But what they do is provide – the mask is a symbol of visible public virtue sort of. Like no one can tell how clean you are. No one can tell whether you went online and bought a $30 COVID test this morning, so you know you're not any risk to anyone. No one can tell whether you've had COVID before, so by definition you're no risk to anyone. But they can see that you're wearing a mask. Yeah, you know, and, 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 and maybe on the reverse side, you know, and a lot of my, my side is like they don't wear the mask. It's like a symbol of I'm not going to be oppressed. And to me, it's like, okay, you know, you may have a scientific reason not to wear a mask, but let's not overdo it. You know, somehow or another, you know, wearing a mask doesn't mean you're going to lose your freedom or your identity. <laughs> uh, if it's, you know, it's, I mean, there are far worse things than fight liberty, to have a battle of liberty and going up San Juan Hill than that. But here's yeah. You know, but here's the thing with the study. I mean, here, uh, this is the thing with the scientific. Because one of the most interesting stories was John Andalonis, who is an epidemiologist. He's a, pres, um, he's a professor of medicine at Stanford University. He is an epidemiologist. Well, he asked certain questions. He said, "Well, you know, wait a minute, guys. Yeah, you know, before we shut everything down, let's find out what we have." And let's see what the infection rate truly is and what we truly have before we shut everything down. And he kind of went against the grain of shutting everything down. And he was viciously attacked. Mm-hmm. But, now, that's just by public officials, but by his own scientists. And so was Scott Atlas uh, the same way when he joined the Trump administration. And the irony that comes into play here is he proved to be correct. On the infection fatality rate. Yeah, that's no. Ianitas and those guys like Bhattacharya, I will say, like some of their lower end predictions, like 10,000. I mean, you and I both know as a data yeah. guys, that turned out yeah. to be pretty wrong. But it, the reason for that, though, is a technical reason, which is that COVID is more infectious than people thought. Like John Ianitas and all those Stanford guys were absolutely correct that the IFR, the infection fatality rate for COVID, seems to be about yeah. 0.24. Uh, the CDC came out in July, I believe, and said it was 0.26. They've since adjusted that a little higher. It got close to 0.6 at one point. It's now 0.4 or something like that. But essentially, those doctors that came out when people were saying, like, Pueo, um, the tech exec famously claimed 10 million people were going to die, those people that came out and said, no, that's not true, and here's why, are to some extent heroes. And, yeah, they were ruthlessly attacked. And certainly anyone that went into politics, especially on the Republican side on the basis of that, worked for a political administration was attacked. Um, I, so, again, there, there are a lot of points here that we're making that are actually pretty deep. Like, science isn't one thing. Science is a method. Yeah. So there are almost invariably going to be studies on either side of a scientific question. And both sides now have begun politicizing science. Unless you're talking about evolution or something, I think the left is a lot more ruthless about this and a lot more poorly educated about this. And that's why you saw the attacks on Ianitas. Um, One thing that is funny is kind of a last line for me is that people who say the right thing, which is kind of let's give the government more power, let's trust our overlords, they are forgiven any number of examples of being wildly wrong. 
So, like, Neil Ferguson, the left-wing British researcher who initially projected the COVID fatality rates, is one of the most consistently dramatically wrong people in science. I mean, this is a guy, if you remember this, that predicted there'd be 2.2 million dead Americans by August. I mean, we're at 267,000, and, I mean, most of those are cases with multiple preexisting conditions. So this guy was wrong by a factor of 10, by 1,000%. And as I understand, he still has his job, at least the tenure job at a university. Yeah, I mean, and here's the thing. Yeah, the other thing that comes into play here is, is because here's the thing that always bothered me, is not that this was a serious virus. Because, uh, and if you even go back to the CDC number, because I know their point four was based on, you know, the original point two five was based on if you had asymptomatic. And if you look at their most recent study where they were looking at, you know, the study that they just came out with, you know, it would be seven to eight infections. Uh, for everyone that's confirmed, we probably have seven to eight. And if you look at those numbers again, it still comes out to about 0.6, and to me, it comes from a public policy point of view. And this is the problem that I've had in all of this is that uh, at the very beginning, you know, Tony Foster, for example, originally stated 0.1 to 1%, but when he went to Congress, he talked to the 1% number almost totality. Mm-hmm. And then he upped those numbers a little bit later. And again, if you look at those numbers, they were very similar to what Neil Ferguson was talking about, you know, millions of people dead. But the reality was he was, you know, the, we, and we base our policy on that. And I guess the question that comes into play is if the average American were told in April or May, look, here's, the, here's your risk. If you do this, you reduce your risk. If you're in this group, you reduce your risk. But people are going to die. People are going to get sick. Uh, this is a unique virus, and we'll do the best we can to protect people, but here's the cost if you do the complete, if we shut everything down. We never truly flesh out. And this is the other aspect that comes into play here, you know, the trade-offs. Yep. Yeah, no, that that is correct. I mean, so, yeah, there, there's a lot there. I mean, the present – Sorry, I had to catch my thought there. Yeah, the the presentation of COVID-19 that was used when doctors came into the halls of Congress or made pitches to even a GOP president originally or tried to get their articles published was this could be doomsday. So, I mean, we all saw Ferguson's projection in a scenario where we did um, essentially what we did, which is called mitigation. I believe he projected that 1.1 to 1.5 million people would die by August, might have been September. You saw Pueyo, who's one of the big bosses in tech, his projections went up to 10 million because he assumed an IFR of something like 3%. I don't know why. And then he said that, of course, the hospitals would start filling up, so you'd have these squalid field hospitals with people dying and so on. And in reality, yeah, if you go back to Ianita's Bhattacharya, there have been reasonable projections of IFR through all this. I, I personally think that the response to COVID will be remembered as one of the greatest human hysterias. Um, if you look at what actually happened, like the elephant in the room is that a bunch of major countries like Sweden, Belarus, some of the Asian islands never shut down anything at all. And they're all doing better than the countries that impose these brutal lockdowns. 
in Sweden right now, they're at 6,683 people dead, you know, average age 82. And that's unfortunate and tragic. But Sweden is a country the size of California that has between 12 and 15 million people. So it, it's hard not to think that that's not going to be considered a better approach when generals and business people are looking at this down the road. But, yeah, we saw these high figures early on. We panicked. We shut down. And because it was the big players like Britain and the USA doing this originally, a lot of other countries followed along. Well, here's you know, the thing. The other thing comes to play to what uh, – and this is a point I want to kind of also really delve into is, is okay, for example, the Danish, the Danish mass study – you know, one of the this was the thing this was a study that was actually completed in August, if I remember correctly, or at the end of July, and it was a study mm-hmm. in which you could have read what the criteria were. They had the criteria listed right out in front of everybody. Here's our criteria. Here's what we're looking at, and so it, which to me was unusual for a scientific study where you're actually telling everybody, here's your endpoints. Here's what we're looking at. And we'll see whether or not what we end up with. And one of the comments was when this, you know, somebody asked, well, when's the study come out? And the comment one of the authors was, when somebody has the guts to publish the study. And yeah, that, and go ahead. No, I, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty obviously correct. Um, you, you see this trend quite a lot, by the way in scientific research to a much greater extent than most people suspect is the case. So I recently, I follow a Lee Jussum, who's the head of the Rutgers psychology department, if I have that correct on Twitter. And he recently posted this incredible graphic. It was, these are all the studies that find that new prescription drugs work. And it was about 150 studies that have been published in top journals, like the Lancet, the new England journal of medicine, they were all highlighted in green. And obviously, I mean, many people that work in this field are going to have taken some money from the drug companies. Um, those are the people that are advertising in some of the better medical journals and magazines, if we're being blunt. So you have this huge block of studies. And then uh, Jessam and a colleague put up a second graphic that said, well, here are the studies showing that these drugs don't work that never saw the light of day anywhere. And it was an equally large graphic. It was, you know, 150, 200 studies highlighted in red. So if you look through the medical press at top levels, you would think that we're discovering miracle drugs every week. And if you're worried about your heart or lungs or your hairline or your penis, it might be a good idea to go out and, you know, take some of these pills. But the reality is that a lot of these drugs seem to work sporadically at best. And what we're seeing are the trials where they do work out. It's the same thing with climate change, by the way. Um, the climate change yeah, hold, yeah, is hold, happening. Yeah, yeah. Hold on to that thought right there. This is Tom Donaldson here on the Donaldson Files and on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. Media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You might know me, I'm 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. 
What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger is too close for us to ignore. So visit feedingamerica.org slash hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. Yeah. And don't forget, like I say, your local charities, it's the Christmas time of season. So uh, I myself, I have a health clinic that I give every year uh, generously. Uh, they provide a, a gas staff for a lot of, and so, you know, and so find yourself a charity, find yourself something to give, to help. It's the Christmas season coming into play. All right, let's go back to, okay, let's kind of talk about climate change. I know we're going to get in that discussion next week, but I want to, because this is, to me, it's even worse in this regard, is a lot of the science is not being published. Or if it's published, it's going to be published in different journals that very few people read. Or the people like Judith Curry basically have, you know, have been ostracized to a point where they're not their views as solid as their data has proven to be is not hitting the public. And we're basing government policy, the Green New Deal, on these worst case scenarios, mm-hmm. which. And again, and, and 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 we're talking billions of dollars are spent by the government to do this research. And the question is, is this research being designed to support a specific policy, and is it truly independent, or has government funding of of the science corrupted it? Yeah, there's so there's there's a lot there. There's a very famous book by Thomas Sowell called The Vision of the Anointed, the great economist Thomas Sowell. And what Thomas Sowell says is that if you look at the leadership class of the United States, it has certain characteristics. Like it's very coastal, it's very upper class, there aren't a lot of, you know, the, the elite tradesmen remaining. It's concentrated in a few cities, uh, New York, DC. My massive hometown of Chicago on the inland seas is probably the smallest of them. Um, you know, educated in a specific 20 or 30 institutions, again, Notre Dame or Michigan or Illinois might crack that list, but they're mostly Ivies. And this group shares an attitude that they are the ones that should lead. They are the enlightened that have been trained to run the country and other people should sort of step out of the way and let them do so. And the book is actually very entertaining because the soul discusses at length the conflict between this group and, you know, other powerful elites that are also did serious. The black elite, kind of the heartland elite. I'm here in horse racing country in Kentucky, you know, regional elites based out of cities like Cincinnati, blah, blah, blah. But what soul says in this book is that certain ideas which forward the cause of this elite, like the idea that we should set back and let the government take care of us are going to be very likely praised in kind of the journals of record, the Lancet on the medical side, the New York Times, the Washington Post. If you say these things, you are going to be applauded and backslapped. Whereas if you're a member of one of the regional elites, as I suppose I am, or something like the religious elite, the Catholic Church has taken a beating lately. If, you're, if you come from the world of industry, as I believe you may have, what you say may be grounded in data, but it's going to be treated very skeptically. Uh, the idea that private charity does a better job providing for people than the government is a classic example of this you've probably read about. So where I'm going with all this yap is that in the case of COVID, 
the two positions were one, kind of the anointed position, and two, just the everyday citizen's position. The anointed position is we're listening to doctors from Oxford and Cambridge, and yeah, they're likely to be wrong. 90% of medical studies are wrong, but they're more likely to be right than anybody else. So all these peasants need to just shut up, put their mask on, shutter their business, and go home. And in response to that, you had a bunch of scientists from the business world, which is my background, if you look at my papers, um, immigrants like Bhattacharya, you know, people that were in non-traditional colleges, you had some pieces from the for-profit college sector, who were saying, well, just empirically looking at the mathematics here, we might not have, you know, the same flashy degrees, but what you're saying doesn't seem to make any sense. I mean, if the COVID IFR is 0.26 and we lose 300,000 people this year, that's a tragedy. But three to four million people just die every year. That doesn't necessarily justify locking down the economy. This is, in fact, specifically what Sweden and Belarus, Jordan, and a number of other countries decided. So that's been reacted to very harshly. And last sentence, but there, there definitely is, you know, not a mafia or anything like that. It's not like a dramatic. But in science, there very definitely is an understanding that if your paper says certain things, it probably won't be published. Um, if you find that the biggest predictor of how people do in school is racism, there's really one famous paper that I ever found that presents a copy called stereotype concept called stereotype threat that will be remembered for 30 years. If you find instead that what predicts how people do in school is IQ or study time or something like that, that'll be treated. People will discuss it in low voices and so on. And people sort of mention that everyone knows that, but that's not going to make you famous. That's not going to make your career because that doesn't contribute to this prevailing vision that we can change the world. Well, let me ask for the follow up on that point right there. You just made because, uh, because obviously in the academic world, you know, getting published is part of the game. But if you have that position where it's almost like a reinforcing pr- principle where if you want to get published or get published in a certain journal, like Lancet, you know, if you go against the grain, or what the grain is, the chance of you getting published is going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot slimmer. You know, I think of, again, I go back to the climate debate where you look at somebody like Judith Curry, who is a top scientist. And she has a far harder time to get published than somebody like Michael Mann of Penn State, who, in my view, is an inferior scientist to her. But he's the expert. Yeah, as a methodologist, I agree with that, by the way. Yeah, and and she's the one ostracized, even though that, indeed, a lot of what she has written is valid. And she's asked all the same questions that, you know, that, let's say, were asked at the beginning, namely – you know, before we go shutting down totally an economy or totally have economic restrictions, we better understand the risk versus benefit. Much of the same way with the Green New Deal. And yeah. Here's the question I'm going yeah, yeah. okay. to throw back to you because you've been contra- – because you've stated on crime stats and you've stated on, let's say, race. And, uh, and here's a thing that got from uh, Mike – Mark Perry, who does a, you know, camp carpe diem point that you make, where, okay, you look at, for example, medium annual earnings for full-time year-round black African ancestry group. If you're from Guyana, you're going to earn close to sixty-nine about sixty-nine thousand dollars a year. That's going to be twenty. That's going to be 
about a third more than what the average black in the United States is going to earn. Uh, the British West Indies is 64000 Now, they use a general term, African. I have no idea what that would be. Is forty-eight, you know, forty-nine thousand. You get the point. You get the point. You you can literally go through a list here and say, you know, what did they, you know, what's going on here? Uh, because if racism is the ultimate impediment to move up the economic ladder, why did they do it? Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I I think that. So, again, a wide-ranging conversation, which is great. But, I mean, so starting with the climate change stuff and then getting into your question, just one note here. When people say only 5% of published articles, that's what it was last year, deny the conventional wisdom on climate change, one thing you'd have to ask there is can you get an article published if you deny the conventional wisdom on climate change? You know – what what are the there are only about four climatology journals that are taken seriously to the point where I've even heard of them and I'm a quantitative scientist. I mean, so what are what are the political positions of the editors of those four journals? And because of this kind of thing, what sometimes is called, you know, clicking regional mafias in the sciences, a lot of the best critiques of a particular science actually come in book form. So, I mean, people have been writing about climate change and about the problems with those journals for a while. I mean, there's a great book, Apocalypse Never, that just came out by an executive and scientist that's discussed this stuff at the level of the UN. There was a book, Apocalypse Not, about 15 years ago. Um, Climate and Fear just came out. So it's the same thing in any of these areas. I mean, like if you're in sociology, you're going to be rewarded if you find extreme forms of racism that give sociologists and social workers something to fight against. Right. I mean, so, you know, there's a, there's a famous paper in that came out in about 2000 by a woman named Deva Prager, Deva, yeah, Deva Prager, P-R-A-G-E-R. And what she found was that there was a fair amount of racism in hiring. I think you were 17% less likely to get a call back if you were black and you were an applicant. But I looked at this, And I noticed that she only looked at applicants for jobs that were – it's pretty long, so I'll try to go through it. But like entry-level, non-affirmative action in the private sector with white-owned companies in the city of Milwaukee in 1998. Like it was just incredibly pow, 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 this is what I'm looking at. And a lot of people have pointed out coming from the outside in kind of quantitative political science or military science. You'd find the exact opposite result if you looked at 100 other fields. Like if you looked at academia where I work, you'd have an enormous advantage if you were a well-qualified young brother applying. Like everybody knows that. So similarly, like when you're talking about this, this data indicates that there is a broad range of incomes and success levels within racial groups. This is one of those things that would be hard to get published, but that everybody kind of knows. So you're given the black figures, and it sounds like the individual income figures. Yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah, Nigerians, Guyanese Americans who can be black or Indian, interestingly. I don't know what the background of that country is. But South African Americans who can be black or white. But just blah, 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 Ghanaians. There are a whole bunch of mostly black groups that average $70,000 or so per year per person. And this gets even more dramatic if you add in, you know, Indian drop-ins who are basically black, but also obviously of Asiatic heritage. 
So the question would be, if you see a jet black dude who's from Nigeria or India, but who just looks like a black guy or dark skinned Latino guy, and you're a racist, why would you treat that person any better than a black American? And the answer is you wouldn't. You'd probably treat them worse. There'd be less of a shared military bond or something there. Well, why is that person worth $100,000 per year then? And the answer is there has to be, there has to be something other than racism that's at play. And for you or me or for business people, housewives, normal people, it's not hard to admit that. But for a lot of these journal types and a lot of the people that read these journals, it is hard. Okay, let me, before, before we take a quick break, I'm going to put a, I'm going to throw, okay, well, let's go back to the Milwaukee study. And, you know, after the break, I want you to kind of give me the answer. But is there a difference between, let's say, as you stated, a black, a young black would have a easier time if he has the PhD is qualified to get in the academic setting where you may have much more recruitment of, of minorities versus a privately run company with a white owned business owner. You know, we'll come back to that question uh, when we get back. This is Tom Donaldson um, here on the Donaldson Files with Will Riley on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Network and the Donaldson Files. This is Dr. Larry Fidoa, host of the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, inviting you to listen live every Wednesday evening from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. I am called the philosopher of current events an independent, open-minded conservative with my own ideas. If you are interested in advertising or having your own show, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you can call in today, 646-929-0130. And stay, pay attention to at Donaldson Files on Twitter, at Donaldson Fire Parlor. Uh, dot com or the Donaldson T files dot com for some special announcements coming up dealing with the, the Bachelor News Radio Network and the Donaldson Files, including a new call in number. So you know just you know keep an eye and ear and open because we got a new website we're gonna have a new website, everything, new call in numbers. So it's gonna be fantastic. You're gonna love this we're taking this network to even a bigger level than what we have. And trust me, we have seen leaps and bounds with this show and other shows on the Bastard News Radio Network. Okay, I'm going to put the challenge to you. If, okay, you, okay, you stated, okay, this, was, this is a study limited to, let's say, Milwaukee. You know, private company run by white. And, and then you made the observation, okay, at a, you know, at a universe, you know, on a universe academic setting, you know, a black, well-qualified would have a leg up in that setting. But could that, I'm going to say, to you, my response to you might be, look, the white-owned business, you know, has their own state where it's okay. In the academic setting, they aggressively look for minorities and have diversity as part of their goal whereas a white business owner may not have that. Does that indicate there'll be more racism if they're not, if they don't have, let's say, that search for diversity among that white business versus the academic study? Well, maybe, but I mean, 21% of businesses are owned by 
Asians or blacks before you even get into Jewish Americans. So, I mean, I suppose we would probably be more likely to hire a you know, well-brimmed young black guy. I mean, to me, first of all, it's not that hard to get a job. I'm not going to go into you know, some Republican rant here, but in college, I mean, it was pretty much always possible to get a job in construction, call center sales, waiting tables, a couple other things by looking for a day. That was true for my black, white, Native American, whatever buddies. But I don't think anyone denies that there is regional or situational racism, i.e., if you're a white guy and you've worked your entire life to get a Ph.D., but you want to teach in the Ivy League, for example, or in that growing HBCU sector where I am or something like that, you had better be prepared to deal with a lot of diversity and understand that you're going to be at a disadvantage relative to a black guy. Similarly, if you're a black guy and you're applying in Milwaukee in the late 90s in the bar and nightclub sector, I mean, you should be prepared for the idea that you might be at a disadvantage 10, 12 percent relative to a white guy. But I guess the, the reason I brought up that study was that depending on what you decide to look at, without cheating at all, without disgracing yourself as an academic at all, you can get pretty much whatever result you want. So if I, as a right-leaning social scientist, decided to show that affirmative action outweighs racism, all I would have to do is look at government jobs or jobs with corporations whose bosses identify themselves as liberal. It'd be fairly easy to find this out by voting records or your sole proprietor or you identify with your business. Um, on the other hand, if someone wanted to find out that racism outweighs affirmative action, all they'd have to do is look in the you know, non-equal opportunity employer privately owned business sector. It would be incredibly easy to get a better business bureau guide and come to either result. So that's kind of the point. Like when people say, you know, we found significant evidence of racism, the first question would be, where did you find significant evidence of racism? Because if you found it in the hiring process at top 10 universities, that would be really shocking. That's a, that's a world-changing finding. If you found it in you know, privately owned white nightclubs in Milwaukee, or you found reverse racism in black nightclubs, that's not really telling anyone anything. And you need to, be, you need to very honestly clarify what you looked at in what's called the methodology section of that study. So it's the, it's the same thing with a lot of this climate change stuff. Like, are you looking at a specific body of water or a specific, you know, formation of glaciation, uh, ice sheet as it's called, in terms of the shrinking or the growing of this thing? Because globally, I mean, we, we know the world has gotten about a half a degree warmer, but that's it. I mean, there, there aren't any serious studies tying increased hurricanes, for example, to climate change. But if you want to find a particular result, i.e. Uh, one of the COVID studies that comes to mind, it was Chinese, I forget the author, but uh, they found that the COVID IFR was almost 4%. What I noticed later as I read through the method study was that the population they looked at was Chinese 80-year-olds. So depending on where you do your research, you can find almost anything. I'm rambling a little bit. That's a key point to take away. If your pool of patients is all 85, you're going to find that COVID-19 is very deadly indeed. Yeah, okay, here's, here's, let's, you know, the answer to this quick question is this, because there's also a review process. Yeah. And, to, and somewhere along the line, there's a reviewer's job is to look at the methodology and say, okay, here's this methodology. Uh, you know, does it, you know, is this, you know, bringing up the same points you just brought up. You know, this is worthy of being published in the journal, or this may not be worthy, or, hey, we got these questions, we're going to ask a researcher to clarify before we publish. Uh, 
you know, somewhere along the line for me, uh, certainly in climatology in particular, you know, that process is almost like a, you know, if you're on my side, I'll pass on to you methodology be damned. Are we seeing, you know, the review process itself decline? Well, I don't know if we're seeing it decline. Sort of, but I, I don't know if that's a substantial decline. I think this is a problem we've been griping about in academia when I use the term mafia and so on for 20, 30 years. Um, so there, there are a couple of things that are worth noting there. You're absolutely right that in a solid peer-reviewed journal situation, you're going to go through some scrutiny. Um, I do a lot of public intellectual writing, but I've also published pieces in the National Association of Scholars Journal, uh, Journal of Contemporary Applied Sciences. I mean, pretty pretty serious locations. That does happen. But it, it's worth noting a couple things here. I mean, first of all, not all journals are reputable. I mean, if we're talking about you want to get a solid, a, a widely read sort of second tier piece out there, I mean, there are journals that will pay that you can pay to publish your work. Um, it won't get quite the same number of eyes, but a lot of that stuff is public access. So you can post it up on the internet. You can post links to your social media. Um, and a number, number of people do that. It's not entirely an unreputable thing to do at this point. There also are sites like Medium now that give the impression of you having been prominently published when, in fact, that's just you writing. Um, that's where the PUAO piece actually originally dropped before someone published it. So when you see an, another category would be what are called preprints. I mean, there are now sites like GitHub, I think ArcDigi does some of this, where you can upload a piece that's sort of deemed worthy in you know, a 20-minute scan by an editor before the piece is published. And then you can link to that and refer to it as you know, the widely read preprint. So a lot of this stuff about COVID-19 hasn't actually been fully peer-reviewed yet. I mean, that's a process that well, takes three or four months. Let me ask a quick question, okay, what you just stated, because I see this quite a bit. You know, because like I guess I literally have, I mean, I have two files in my thing that I keep. I have one for climate change. I have one for healthcare, and I literally got hundreds of articles, and a lot of them are what I told you, what you just said, the pre-published. Yeah, you know, it seems to me that there's an aspect that I do like about the pre-published in the sense that it's there. You can look at it. Uh, your people can comment. And they can look at the methodology, and you can almost get an instant feedback to say whether or not you're on the right path, or you may have to go back and redo something. You know, that would be my view of that, because I see that quite yeah. a bit. What's your? I mean, uh, I love preprints, and I, I also love the fact that some of the book publishers, like Regnery on the right or Third World Press on the left, are now starting to take on these manuscripts. Like if you look at, this wasn't with either one of those, but if you look at Cynical Theories by James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, I mean, it would have been a you know, damn hard grind to get that published additional philosophy publisher. But they went with a book publisher. They published what's basically an academic book, and it's like number three in the country right now. So I like it that there are more forums for this information to get out. But it's also important, you and I are both pretty skilled scrutinizers of data. It's important for ordinary taxpayers when they look through the newspaper to realize certain things like this may not even have published in a journal these days. I mean, it might have been published in an anthology by some book publisher. It might have been a popular preprint. It might have come out on medium. Look at what's being cited. And even if it was published in a journal, remember that you can pay the average journal 100 bucks to publish your piece. I mean, the people I just mentioned, Lindsay and Pluckrose. Um, published something like 11 fake papers with the top journals in sociology and ethnic studies yeah. that were just nonsense. Like one was an analysis of quote-unquote out-of-shape bodybuilding. 
Um, you know, oh, you yeah. could be a fat bodybuilding champion. One was just a chapter of the book Mein Kampf. One was a oh, question yeah, about whether the yeah, doggy remember, style position is. Yeah, yeah I remember go, that go study. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that because there was something like they had <laughs> sent out a bunch of them, and about a third had already been accepted. Before in they, the top journals. Yeah. In the top journals before they said, all right, by the way. <laughs> and the thing is, <laughs> so that's why I talk about the review process because they they had one scientist who agreed to have his name put, but all the other co-authors of these studies were fake. Their organizations were faked. And you would think that somebody would have called up and say, uh, you know, Bodybuilder Association, University, uh, are you for real? <laughs> I mean, they didn't even do that. Yeah, it was like the they there were just ridiculous ridiculous names used. I mean, like yeah, one was like the National Association of Fat, Fat Bodybuilders. I mean, the most famous paper the the way I present it when I describe it to friends is is the doggy position not feminist for animals? But what they're essentially doing is looking at dog parts and seeing which breeds of dogs are more likely to hump one another and. Analogizing this to "quote unquote" feminist rape culture, I mean, and this—they just made all the data up, of course. But I mean, this was published in like a top five journal of sexuality. It won some kind of award. It was like the paper of the year for that entire journal. So, I mean, just again, keep all this in mind when you see someone say, "Well, what have you ever published in sociology?" Like the, the response to that is, you know, the people that were talking about whether dog sex is feminist published in sociology, you know. The, the question is how good the methods are in an article, basically. That, that's really what it comes down to, how good the methods are in an article. The rest of it, you know, yeah. Well, you know, here's a lot of things go into that. Yeah, I mean, here's a, I'm going to give you a couple of quick examples. I mean, first of all, the study you did on the lock, the two studies you did on lockdown was a follow-up to the study you already done. But to me, when I look, what I, one of the things I will look at, I would say, you know, is this idea way out there? Or is this an outlier? Or maybe we're discovering new? Or have there been other studies out there? And certainly in your case on the lockdown, there have been other studies that confirmed what you stated. And I can remember years ago I did a, I did one on illegal citizen voting. And I can always remember because I'm a guy who's been done politics for 50 years. And I've run political campaigns in, 50, in about 25 states. And I remember mm-hmm. there was an old Dominion study used a different methodology. And their numbers and my numbers were not that far off. And I remember a gentleman who has written books on fraud, election fraud, you know, you know, you know, used my, you know, you know, used my as reference. I called him up, you know, like so I've gotten friends with the guys. So I'm just curious. You know, my methodology was very simple. I simply asked voters if they were legal. And, <laughs> and he said, <laughs> and he said to me, he said, well, you know, in this market, in this, what you're doing is about as good as anything else I've seen, one way or the other. <laughs> but it, it's, but it, you know, but the thing is, I had other scientists, basically, at least I could sit back and say, well, this guy and this guy and this guy has verified my data in their own study, so I'm not out there on left field. And that's you know the one thing I always kind of looked at, you know, when I see okay your research. I mean, you're not the only one who's discovered lockdown. The, you know, the impact of lockdown, but you've done three studies and there's been, there have been others out there pretty much following up on the same line as far as results go. Now, whether methodology, I'm not certain of, but certainly. And that's, you know, that's, that's always been one of my views. Uh, you, know, you know, what else has been said out there? 
Yeah, I think I think that there are a lot of ways, and we're we're unpacking a lot of them. But there are a lot of ways to look at the validity of a study. I mean, the first is what you call facial validity, really, for me. Like, does it seem to make sense? Like, does it make sense that locking down would cause dramatic increases in unemployment? I think unless you're an idiot, unless you're being intentionally delusional, the answer is yeah. Like, if you shut down 35% of the economy, more people are going to be out of work, especially young men. So, I mean, does it make sense? Um, is it replicable? This is, this is a big problem, actually, in uh, social science right now. When you look at this stuff that's dealing with race, for example, like someone will find that having a racist teacher correlates statistically significantly with black kids doing badly, of which, you know, there's a 50% chance in a classroom over a certain size, a block of kids are going to do badly. One of two races is going to do worse or something like that. Um, but people that try to find this again don't. That particular study has not been replicated especially well. So, I mean, does this make sense? Has it been replicated? Has it been done again? Are there other people finding the same thing? And again, the issue with a lot of this isn't that there's not plenty of work on both sides. If you look at Thomas Sowell and Glenn Lowry and some of the people I work with on uh, the 1776 project, there's a ton of work showing that most of the problems for blacks or poor whites or whatever in America aren't due to conflict between those groups. That's actually the majority position in the sciences where you get into debates about IQ and so on. But it really almost doesn't matter if no one will present that in the popular press. So there are a lot of different things. There are ways to show that a study is good. And then when you're actually looking at the science and you realize that there are good studies on both sides, what determines whether something becomes famous that makes that yeah. researcher's career? That's a tough question. Well, here's a, you know, before we're running out of time, but I guess maybe to me the question I would think about is trade-offs. You know, Tom Sowell talks about trade-offs. Oh, yeah. And this was something you know, that was missing, has been missing in the COVID debate all along is what's the trade-off? Okay, you – on one side of the equation, the way I kind of put it is, you know, if two to three out of a thousand people will die from COVID versus one of a thousand from the flu over the past decade, do we, what's the benefit to save that extra two per thousand lives? And what are we giving up? And, and I think that that to me is another aspect of science, namely, what's your trade off? And that's certainly something that's rarely discussed. I'll give you a quick 30 seconds to respond, and then we're going to have to kind of wrap everything up. But Yeah, no, Sol, obviously the great economist, very famously said there are no solutions when it comes to serious adult business and military decisions. There are only trade-offs. We often tend to forget that. Cowardly politicians very much do. In the case of COVID, if 3 million people die every year, 4 million people die every year, does it make sense to shut down society to prevent a 9% increase in the death rate? Uh, I don't think so point here. Uh, did you know Walter Williams? Because I know he just passed away today, the the economist from George Mason. Um, we exchanged some emails we hadn't personally met. I had heard that and hoped it wasn't true. I got a text about it uh, from a student asking, did this yeah. happen? But, you know, RIP, uh, the great man, if he unfortunately is no longer with us. Yeah. Well, he, that, well my understanding, he's passed away because I saw this on, uh, you know, like, uh, Steve Hayward uh, on Powerline uh, gave a eulogy, so it must be true. <laughs> well, listen, thank you very much yeah. for being on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, next week we're going to have a follow-up with other individuals. You know, the, Is science being politicized? 
what's happening with the scientific class and what's an impact. Uh, so next week, and don't forget, stay tuned for announcements on uh, changes dealing with the network, including a new call-in number. So this is Tom Donaldson saying good night. Good night, Tom. trumpet you know it's the dr larry show on the bachelor news radio network i'm dr larry fidawa your host for the uh for the hour and tonight we're going to do something a little different we're not going to have a a uh, opening statement uh we are in fact going to uh go directly to a very uh, interesting and uh actually uh, uh very uh a uh, brave story about a, a gentleman who uh, has uh, successfully uh, challenged the, the federal government uh, in court and uh, won through almost uh, superhuman uh, type of uh, dedication and uh, single-mindedness. And uh, he has come out the other end as, uh, as uh, prosperous and... Uh, happy and uh, joyous as he ever was, and his name is Michael Doherty. And uh, I'd like to welcome Mike to uh, the uh, Dr. Larry show tonight, and we're going to dedicate the whole whole uh, show to to, uh, Mike and his story and and some of the things that he had learned uh, in a very hard way uh in uh, in in the in the process so mike welcome to the dr larry show well it's good to be here sir thank you for uh giving me the time and the platform i appreciate that well uh tonight um i'd like to have you uh give a, a brief uh uh introduction to our audience about uh, your own background and and how you uh you know where where you came from, where you're going, and uh, and then we'll get into the details uh, of your uh, really uh, amazing story about uh, your uh, strife with the federal government. Well, you know, I, I came from Detroit, and and it, it's strange how uh, you know the Lord works in mysterious ways because I, I think that everything um, that happened in my life the first 45 years I didn't know. Was kind of really had a had a hand in my being ready when the government came at me because the main thing about this is I felt in a, in a weird way it's like I'm not a veteran and I felt like this was my way to go to war you know for the for the American people because I knew that the government steamrolls people like crazy and I'm one of the few 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 that was in that position to do it. And the, net, and the first part is my being born in Detroit, 
um, not an easy place to be, uh, and being raised by two Detroit police officers, which is a, a great thing. Um, both my parents met when they were police officers in the Detroit Police Force, and my dad was an investigator. He never was a uniform guy. He was a trench coat murder homicide guy. And uh, I'm being the oldest son and the only son. I, 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 I sort of marinated and, and, and absorbed all that stuff. And as a child, everything that happens as a child you think is normal, what happens to everybody. So that wasn't strange to me. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know until later that everybody's father wasn't a homicide investigator. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, and I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood, and I'm half Greek. And so I didn't know that everyone wasn't Jewish <laughs> until I was about 10, <laughs> except for me. And so all those things um, exposed me uh, to a lot. You know, and then we moved out of Detroit during the riots, and, and I went to the University of Michigan. And, you know, I didn't want to work in the auto industry, and I didn't want to be a police officer. So, And I didn't like the winter. So I left. You know, I got a, de- a degree at the University of Michigan in economics. And then I chose to work in medicine. I wanted to be in, in, you know, science. Um, You know, I wanted to make good money. I wanted to be in surgery. And and it was a phenomenal, phenomenal thing. And and so, I, I, you know, this country is so incredible because you you can come to, you know, we were middle class at best. You know, police officers aren't paid a lot. Uh, My mother became a school teacher after she had um, my my two sisters and myself. So they were two income breadwinners and, you know, total middle class, suburban, on the lake, you know, experience. And then I I got a job in surgical sales. And, and uh, the University of Michigan is what really taught me the skills to be able to be in the operating room uh, instructing physicians on how to use devices when I was 25. So that medical career that went on for a good 20 years after that, I, I worked uh, years in surgery uh, I started my company, LabMD, before I left the, the job, uh, and it overlapped. All I did was take my client base, which were, at that time, urologists. I worked in all sorts of specialties. But the, in the 90s, I was working in urology, and I uh, started a medical laboratory to focus just on prostate cancer. And I had all the relationship built already. So because I had all the relationships built, I could tie right in and really hear them unfiltered about what they needed, and that's what I gave them, what they needed, which, you know, big big companies don't do. Quest, LabCorp, mega hospitals, they don't do. And so um, it was hugely successful, and I was like living the American dream. I mean, I was working too hard. My life was ex- extremely lopsided, Uh and I was obsessed with work, and it was stimulating. And I've I've never ever been a clock watcher. I can't tell you how much fun and intense my job was. I just I just I still love that work. And um, so you know what better thing in life? And then out of the blue, like a movie in 2008, uh, as we're we're, we're debt free, we're profitable, we're starting to really hum. Uh, we've got about 12,000 square feet. We've got a lease on moving to 26,000 square feet. And the phone rings, and it's a guy from a company called Typhursa in Pittsburgh. And he says, hi, I found 9,000 of your patients in cyberspace. Uh, we just want you to know because we do type of remediation and investigation, and, uh, and they're out there probably shared on a peer-to-peer network. Now, this is where... You know, I come in as being raised by police officers with, oh, really? 
who the hell are you? <laughs> so, so, yeah, because you have to know in the in the one thing about the political machine uh, that always drove me crazy from my point of view is that the American public has been brainwashed since about I don't know Nixon or a little later that that their congressman is who knows about their um, medical background, and so you've got you know Hillary and you've got everyone trying to take control of medicine and I, I now that I know what I know I think it's because we're so spoiled I guess and entitled and we have such great health in this country so and, and that that we don't know what it's like to really have chronic disease or or work be within the medical system ourselves and so since we have no knowledge about it we can listen to these stories and buy off on this crazy stuff and so, you know, at that time, we were being scared to death about HIPAA and privacy. And if you didn't have anyone's, you know, if you didn't protect anyone's data, you could get a jail. And you get all these cards in the mail every day. Take our class and so you won't go to jail. And, and I would crack up because I think to myself, every day I'm in the operating room and we're and naked people are being cut on. And we don't remember their name when they're there, let alone when they're five feet down the hall. <laughs> and I don't want to tell people that, but, you know. So this is this is sort of a, whatever, you know. I never thought it would be such a big deal, and then suddenly it explodes in my face because I got a guy saying, I got your stuff, and the second I say, how did you get it, and who are you, he doesn't want to answer the question. That's a problem. And yeah. so And so from then on, immediately, I thought this guy is a con. I also thought he was a con because my – tech people, which differentiated us from the competition, said, this isn't even possible. This is BS. So so, so what was impossible was that he has your, your uh, client list. Mm. It was impossible that he had it by the means of which he said he got it. I he see. showed us he had it because he sent it to us. Oh. But my IT people said, no way he get it that way. He had to steal it. Now, we are, as we're experiencing through COVID right now, and this, I think, is the human condition. Well, let's uh, let's yep. wait for the next chapter. We are, oh. You're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. If you want real discussions on politics, social issues, racial issues, and other topics, then tune into the Bachelor News Radio Show. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. And if you miss the show, you can listen every Monday through Saturday at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern. And every Sunday at 5 a.m. and 3 p.m. at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Listen and be informed. show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and we'd like to uh, announce tonight that we have a new uh, uh, podcast-based uh, ne- uh, website. It's, uh, it's, it's the familiar www.thebachelornewsradionetwork.com, and it will, if you uh on a particular program, you just go to the uh, show that the, the name of the show that uh, you are looking for, and you will find uh, the podcasts of each of our 
uh, current uh, uh, programs uh, right there uh, at your uh, at your leisure. So, no no more of this uh, going to uh, having to look at uh, a particular time of the day and uh, so on. Uh, this is a, a, a grand uh, uh, event for for our for our uh, folks, and uh, we're very pleased to uh, be able to uh, announce it tonight. And uh, so, right now, we're talking to uh, uh, one of the uh, heroes of uh, of a new and uh, new kind of uh, government resistance, uh, Mike Doherty. Mike, uh, pick up your story. We're uh, listening with bated breath. <laughs> okay, so where was I? Oh, I was right there. Where? Okay, so so the the tech guys are telling me no way, and so we just you know we're freaked out. We start looking. We can't believe it's out there. We never find our patients' information out there, and it's and, and we have new stuff, and it, it just doesn't make sense. But we we don't know that at this point it's involved with the government. We just I'm just very aware that this guy is a con. So I record everything he does. I won't speak to him on the phone. I just may, and when I mean record, we only communicate in writing, in emails. And so we have everything written. Because I also been around the block enough to know that when you're getting confrontations with people, and as he said, she said, uh, the evil people win because <laughs> doubt kills. And in, in the real world, you're usually guilty till proven innocent, not innocent till proven guilty. And so I wanted everything in writing because I knew right off the bat this guy's a crook. And I also knew no one was going to believe me. And so uh, it was fascinating because he would send these emails like, oh, my gosh, you know, really, the longer you wait, the worse could be. Uh, did you see the Washington Post this morning? Supreme Court Justice Breyer's stuff, he lost his data in the same manner. So you're not alone, but you really should take heed. And all these friendly, caring ways that he was trying to basically extort me. And but at the same time, when I asked a simple question like what IP address did you find it from, he wouldn't answer anything except for, for a $40,000 fee. Oh, so this went on so for the summer is. of 2008. And then he, I finally said, go away. And his lawyer called in the fall of eight and said, you know, we will be giving your information to the government because we think this could be some violations here. And this is my naivete. I laughed at the 2008 version of me. I worked with scientists that were government employees that they inspected us every year. So we had a great relationship. There was no, you know, it's like facts, right? So there's none of this notch on the belt, try to gotcha stuff that people fear about the IRS. And so I, I was naive. I'm like, Call the government. No problem. <laughs> Have at it. And he yeah. did. Now, in 2009, we kept looking for everybody and looking for evidence and couldn't find anything, and it just faded away. And as we relaxed into our stuff, just as we got real relaxed, sure enough, uh, here comes the government sending us a letter in early uh, two, in two, January of 10 saying, we're starting a non-public investigation over you. Now, I also know from working medicine for years that these hotlines when people call and complain go to Never Neverland. So that if someone actually calls the government and says, you know, look at this guy, there's a prior relationship. So I right then, again, said to my attorney now that I have the government calling me, these, the guy, this guy's in bed with the government. Now, of course, everyone chuckles at me, right? Oh, come on now. 
all this stuff's going on. Why would the government be, you know, interested in a cancer laboratory with 700,000 patients when they're so busy with other things? Good question. And so, of course, no one believed me, but I said, because this guy can't possibly get their attention as an outsider. He has to be an insider. He must be. Of course, no one believes me for years. So, but I just put that stake in the ground, and we moved on, and we just, uh, they started a non-public inquiry, and they started asking questions, 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 and we're completely bewildered because we have perfect scores in our inspection. Uh, we, don't, we don't have anything out there. No one's ever called. We've scoured peer-to-peer networks. We never found our file out in cyberspace. We totally believe this guy broke in, took it, and hasn't gotten it anywhere, but we can't prove that, right? And now you're dealing with the Federal Trade Commission and a government agency and bureaucrats, all things that most Americans don't know anything about. And, and much to the chagrin of the Federal Trade Commission and their really healthy egos, no one's heard of them outside of Fortune 500, especially in medicine when we're, we're, you know, we're regulated by health and human services. But the Federal Trade Commission has got, you know, the, the really healthy sense of self-importance and in uh, direct inverse proportion to their education and professionalism, and they're just a bunch of B-grade lawyers that couldn't get into the Justice Department trying to make a name for themselves. Now, that sounds really caustic, but it happens to be true. <laughs> and, so, and so they will do things like that, that now I consider the, you know, bureaucrat 101 playbook, which is forget justice, forget due process, it's persecution through process, and get everyone you're investigating to succumb and, and roll over just to get rid of you and threaten them with anything and everything if they don't play. Does this sound familiar to Mike Flynn? Because yeah. what they did to Mike Flynn is the oldest hidden story in the U.S. government's 20th century and 21st century behavior. This is what bureaucrats do. We're here to save the world. We have tons of power. We have the Administrative Procedures Act. The courts have to bow to us. Lazy Congress loves it because we're the bad guys. And I'm sorry, you lost the lottery and you're in the grinder. And the only way out of this is to pay for your out-of-jail-free card because you're not going to get out of here alive, even if you're innocent, if you don't roll over. Well, I learned this through reading this stuff, and I was shocked. I mean shocked. <laughs> I'm not shocked anymore, but I laugh at myself because I'm like so naive. You know, I work in medicine where in medicine everyone truly subconsciously is, or, or consciously is with the patient and, and for patient care and a sense of community, even if they're bad surgeons. I mean there's exceptions to every rule, okay? There's corruption everywhere. But by and large, there's a much more higher uh, sense of community in a, in a medical world. And so I am completely stunned by this. I'm like, golly, gee, I don't think these people care. <laughs> golly, they think we're really – I mean, they were treating us like felons. We were – you know, we flew up to uh, D.C. to be interviewed by them, and, they, you know, we get into a glass room. They're sitting at the other side, and they've got their binders out, and they're completely humorless, humorless. And they don't have a victim. They don't have information, nothing, but they just want you to talk and talk and talk. And um, it's insane. I mean, it's, I felt like I was, on a, I was on a TV show. You have know, NCSI when they interview you through the frosted glass. It was just bizarre. And in that moment, I knew these people are power-mongering, and they're deep into this, this city. And it's, 
antichrist of what we're taught about in this country. And I'm in trouble. And what, no one's going to believe the, me. What was your legal setup at, the, at this time? Had they filed a complaint or oh, was no, there an they investigation or what? Ground. No, that's a great question. All the agencies want – here's the game. They want you to be grounded into a consent decree so that they don't have to go in front of an Article Three judge because if they go to an Article Three judge, all these shenanigans don't fly. Most of their people they go after are corporations or little guys, both of whom are known to roll. Corporations because they've got a check and they don't really care, and little guys because they don't have the muscle to fight back. But, see, I was in medicine, and we're talking patients, and this is real. And these are cancer patients, and these are life, life and death. I can't sign a consent decree that in fine print says admits no wrongdoing. And anyone believe that. TJ Maxx could. Home Depot could. Any big corporation can. No one pays attention. I mean, no one, the public doesn't pay attention. People have not stopped going to Target. <laughs> so, you know, but in our situation, it was going to kill the company because people do pay attention. We were really taken, we were really eating the shorts out of the big guys. We, we had such great service that they just couldn't do. We were like the little mouse and the elephant's toes, you know. They just couldn't move like we could move. So our niche of business, we would take away tons of business from big, big laboratories and drove them crazy. So I couldn't have a consent decree floating you, out there on the internet. Think, do you think mm-hmm. that that's that's why they that is the reason why they uh, chose you to pick on? No, I think they never knew. They they you know it was. We later found out once once we started really winning that the reason they chose on me to pick on wasn't really that they didn't they chose it, it was it was Tyversa in bed with them. Uh, chose to put me up because I fought him and I wrote the book. When he found out I was writing a book as a novel narrative type to explain to the public what an investigation is like, they freaked out and they wanted to just come at me. And it was such a battle. I mean, with every punch they'd throw, I'd throw them one. And they couldn't believe I could hit them with a punch. And then when they sued me, they found out I had pro bono defense. You know, and then when we got to Court of Appeals, I had ropes and grade defending me, you know, pro bono too. And so it just, it was like this David and Goliath thing, but they couldn't believe that I had power. And, you know, I know that Davids have to operate different than Goliaths, but Davids have power. And... Yeah, I was just I wasn't I knew they were gonna ruin me. Either way, they didn't know they'd ruin me by I mean, a consent decree because they don't know what they're doing in medicine. But I know I was gonna be destroyed. So what, where, what this must have really had an impact on your business. It destroyed it. And it didn't destroy it from the outside, it destroyed it from the inside. Because we went through the investigation really silently for about three years. We're only about you know, five lawyers and five managers knew. And it was really stressful. Those managers, when you talk about people that run medical labs that are, so, that are doing cancer testing, these people work hard. They are helping people they don't know, that they'll never know. They're doing cancer diagnostics by the hundreds every day. These are good, good soldiers that don't get thanked. These are really great Americans. And, and they don't have any idea what our government's like. And the, the, the reality 
of the behavior of these bureaucratic lawyers, the Federal Trade Commission, and the flat-out dirtiness of them was just too much for them to take. And it really, it just it hollowed out the, the heart of the company because they were sleepless, they were stressed, they were uh, taking these it are home. Your employees. These are your employees. These are my senior managers. Yeah. Senior managers. So their spouses would be upset because they're, because they'd see the toll it was taking. It was utterly baffling. It was like, what did we? Because here's the thing: the question is, what did we do? And the answer is, we're not telling you. You're being unreasonable. What is unreasonable? We'll decide as we find out what's going on here. That's what it's like. So and 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 they. They're so ahead of everybody else because everyone that hears this stops in shock, disbelief, and confusion and goes no further. And so, you know, the high stakes about me against them, and I knew this, wasn't court, wasn't, was not anything like that. Not the fake game they play because that's a fake game. The, where I really hit them was, I'm going to blow the whistle on these people. I'm going to tell a, a logical, authentic, intelligent story. I'm not going to look like the crazy man on the side of the road in the rain with a picket sign. That's what they want you to do. But I wrote the book that so, always so, will be there, and that drove so, me crazy. So uh, you're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe radio broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dr. Larry Show, which is also the home of the Donaldson Files with Tom Donaldson and Coco Konsky. Tom and Coco discuss politics from the right and the left while giving you entertainment news and guests. Listen live every Tuesday and Wednesday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com slash la hyphen Bachelor, and every day at uh, and every day and at our new website, you can hear the uh, the any of the uh, recent uh, broadcasts of the Donaldson Files uh, by going to the to the uh, proper page and uh, and uh, taking your pick. So uh, if you uh, are interested in having your own show or advertising, email us at. LABachelor40 at gmail.com. Listen and stay informed. And we're talking to Michael Doherty, and uh, we're about to hear uh, the uh, the climax of this. How long did all this, uh, where are we now in, in time, in real time, well, Mike? Well, this was the, the really investigation battle. In about 2013, they finally sued me. And when they sued me, that was really the, the next stage of, 
of um, most people quit by then, see? So now we're in a new experience where these lawyers really don't go to court that often on their side. And my lawyers don't really go to court and administrative law that much. And you learn things that the public doesn't know, and even I think most congressmen don't know, I learned, <laughs> is that, you know, these, these, these uh, administrative courts don't use the federal laws of civil procedure. So your lawyers are in a whole different different environment where hearsay is acknowledged and people, the other side can say whatever the heck they want. They can make up stuff. They can throw as many slime balls as they want. They completely lie out the yazoo and there's no accountability and they say it's up to the administrative law judge to decide. So it all comes on the table even if there's no evidence for it. And, uh, and, and so it's crazy town and it's awful and it's stacked and, uh, and that's why a lot of people play, pay and, and, sign the consent decree because your lawyer is going to tell you it's a war you can't win. I'm sorry you've lost the lottery. Life is hell. Yes, the public doesn't know it. And journalists aren't smart enough to figure it out. <laughs> and politicians, Congress is happy with it because Congress is, doesn't get to be held accountable for anything. They just get to pontificate and raise money and live a great lifestyle. So, you know, what we have growing underneath the surface of Washington, D.C., since Woodrow Wilson, is the real government control, which is now over a century morphed into this mega thing, uh, which, which, which is also the same as the Biden machine. And it's huge, and it's had a century to grow. And it's not chosen by us, and it's, and it's got power over us, and they don't have accountability, and they have power. And, you know, once you're in that crowd, you don't want to leave it. And so uh, it, it's, it's been fascinating. And my whole agenda has, has not been to win because there's no such thing. I mean, there's a legal win, but there's no such thing as winning. It's a war. And when you're at war, you don't win. You just, you just fight, and, and it's for a bigger deal. And the bigger deal here is to really educate the public that the civics books they might have been taught about is 19th century government law, and that right now it belongs right in between The Wizard of Oz and Alice in Wonderland, and that we have no idea how our, how, what's going on in government, and they want it that way. Well, before we get, get to that, uh, what happened? <clears throat> well, we won in the ALJ court, and he sided with us, but... Uh, you know, the court the court decided with you. Yes, and so the commissioners overturned their own court because oh. they have more power than their own judges, and that oh blew God. away everyone's brain. The, the, the I mean, the journalists, everyone were like, "What? <laughs> how could you win?" And then, and that's when Ropes and Gray came in because this is how the game is played. They run you through the ringer. All that is putting on a treadmill to drain you dry, drain you dry, drain you dry. And the media doesn't know what the heck's going on, so they're reporting it like you know, and you're guilty to a proven innocent, and and then you know, they then they're baffled when this happens, and they don't you know that's too complicated. So what happens when it gets complicated is they leave. The second it gets complicated, journalists are out the door <clears throat> because I'm not famous, and they don't understand how it's important to the public, and they know what's going on. And they don't have the budgets, and they don't have the time, they don't have the education. And I know that these people that pulled this stunt know this, so they chuckle 
when someone like me comes around. But I, I was not your typical, you know, you know how they, they paint you like, oh, you're just you're good. you're gonna go for principle. I, I'm like, I'm not a guy that runs around fighting on principle. <laughs> yeah, fight to win. I, 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 no, oh, I'm, I'm, I always say, no, we're going to go to war, and I might lose, but I, you're going to lose at least your leg. You're going to lose at least your leg. I can't destroy the whole Federal Trade Commission, but I can take their leg. And, um, and I can let people know. And, it's, and because the biggest picture is we have to have more examples of this in the real world so the public can have reality to sink their teeth into. And when I was there and talking to House, uh, House Commerce and these committees, they would say, we can't even have a hearing about this because there's not a single company that will show up to talk negatively about an agency that regulates them because they're, they're responsible for the shareholders. And then you know what happens. It's like, it's like you go, go tell, you know, you go tell uh, the, the teacher about the bully, and then the second the teacher's not looking, the bully comes and pounds into the ground. And that's what happens with these agencies. You know, if these companies, they'll get you. <laughs> they will get you. <laughs> and so it's an, it, we are in this intimidation tactic, and stories that, are, that people care about are important. And it's not sympathetic if it's General Motors. But it is sympathetic if it's a cancer detection center with 700,000 patients that just gets destroyed. And, I mean, that's what people can't relate to. Well, one of the reasons that I asked you to come on the show is because uh, I wanted to sh- show the, the, the audience that what it, this sounds very, very familiar to what happened to uh, President Trump. Yeah. And, and uh, I wanted people to understand that this is not – the uh, the way the FBI and uh, particularly the uh, FBI and the judge, Justice Department acted in that case is not really um, and, uh, 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 unusual or unique. And it is, in fact, the way the the, the way the op- bureaucracy tends to operate all the time. And your your case is certainly one case in in in, in uh, a case an example of the fact that this is not an unusual situation that uh, that the president found himself in. In fact, it's quite common. It, it, the the, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, bureaucracy does not want to, uh, it does not have to feel like it has to give up anything. They, they, they want to rule, and they want to rule... Uh, with uh, by their own lights, uh, and the devil take the hindmost. And, well, and you're, wash, you're a good, you're a good example of that. And and it is wash, rinse, repeat. And once you understand the playbook, it's the same show, just different actors. So with Trump, it's okay. Here comes the Biden machine, the media, the bureaucrats, big corporations, big law. It's the machine. Same people. And they maul you, and they've mauled him and mauled him. And they could maul him longer because he's stronger to take it longer, okay? And then the second it's over, Biden's like, they'll say anything. They're sociopathic. Oh, kumbaya. Oh, let's all get along. Peace treaty. And there's enough idiots in this country because we're so spoiled (laughs) that they don't get it. So the irony of all ironies to me is the liberals that are into – you know, taking care of each other and caring about your fellow man, all these pie-in-the-sky lovely ideas, 
and they're they're putting gas in the tank of utter corruption. And I know they don't understand it because there's not enough stories or explanation about it. This is why, to me, it's so important that people understand that we don't have a civics book in this country that is accurate. And lawyers sure do not know how to tell story. So they're not going to tell you. <laughs> I mean, they, you know, they have their brains rewired between their first and third year of law school, and they cannot communicate in real terms. And so Trump is just this massive mirroring of what goes on. And, you know, and they think, see, this is the irony of Trump, is they think if they, and it's similar to me, I got more powerful the second my company closed because I wasn't dead. They thought they'd kill me. They did what they could to me. When, if Trump's the loser here, I mean, Katie barred the door here, he's going to come. <laughs> because, you know, he, 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 and that's why they freaked out when he won. You know, he's got the keys to the, to the, the mausoleum, and he knows where all the bodies are buried. And, you know, it, it, we have a real division in this country because I've learned that people will go to great lengths of denial and cognitive dissonance to protect their own opinions and to protect their worldview. They will go upside down. And I never thought that they would do that when it came to crime and harm. But I, I did learn, and it's in my book, I did learn about the Milgram study early on because I was fascinated by how can people be like this? I mean, I was like, you know, I'm used to working in medicine with surgeons and doctors and professionals, and we're all some sort of positive. And, and here I'm writing, meeting these lawyer after lawyer in D.C. I'm like, what is the point of your existence? And what are you getting out of this? And why do you feel good about yourself? And, you know, and then I realized, you know what? If you really want to mess with them, that's where you go. Because they know deep down it's just terrible. And so that's where I went in the book. All I did was hold up the mirror. And it is wash, rinse, rinse, repeat. It happens. I can't tell the people that have called me that they're going through it now or have been going through the last few years. And it's true from the SEC. You know, the SEC is really big on this. You know, go after the corporations, bully them into the ground, BPA. You know, we've heard the stories, the EPA, you know, some for, for every one victim that crawls all the way up bloody to the Supreme Court because some think tank pays their legal bill because the EPA, you know, fines them tons of money because there's a swamp pond over their property line or something that they wanted to remove. You know, and they get to the Supreme Court and they, they win nine nothing. Well, you know, guess what? What did they really win? Because that story of how crazy the EPA is and how dirty they play that they'll even go and lose to the Supreme Court, that's not what they – they still won because they can use that story to intimidate everyone after about how much they fight. And so your lawyer will tell you, settle. I know you're not guilty. Settle. I, I, know, I know it's terrible. Settle. I know it's unjust. Settle. I know it's not what you're taught about this country. Settle. <laughs> you know, and um, there's a line. Well, I think everybody, every everybody that's ever been in business has had that experience. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's your your lawyer telling you, well, yeah, you 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 you've been you've been wronged, and you are on the right 
side of this, but the fact is it'll cost you more in legal fees to fight uh, than it will than than you would ever win. So uh, my so uh, advice to you is uh, settle right now. That's right. And, and and sometimes that is a smart decision. So I don't, you know, when I was fighting them, there were 37 consent decrees signed by companies over the FTC's behavior in cybersecurity, and not one had gone, gone to court. That's another part that people don't understand. They don't want to go to court because court's going to smack them around. So they are hell-bent to get you to settle before you go to court. And no one wants to, and they have all sorts of ways to drain you dry and drag you out before you get to court. And, the, you know, the media helps them because everyone loves a story about a big, bad company. You know, so you've got these idiot journalists that can barely spell, <laughs> you know, yeah. with well, their in-the-bag editors who, who are like screaming Democrats have never been in the real world once, you know, let, thinking let, they're let, saving the world. Let's take a little break before we right. condemn them uh, anymore. <laughs> uh, this is the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Tune in to You and the Law with Chief Virgil Green and Chief Keith Humphrey. The show focuses on law enforcement and their relationship with the black community while letting you know your legal rights as a citizen when confronted by the police. Listen live every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Sunday at 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. You're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We're uh, listening to the story of uh, uh, Mike uh, Mike Doherty and 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 his really amazing uh, tenacity to uh, keep after this thing until eventually uh, you you came out with 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 certainly uh, you, you you certainly proved that that they. But maybe what what you were uh, hoping to do was to uh, prove that uh, these people uh, can be defeated and that they, that they really are as bad as we think they are. Is, is that a fair statement? Yeah, but you know you do need luck, and I and you guys, that's where I was in a unique situation because I could do crazy things like not lose my food because I lost my company or write a book and not tell people and make it good uh, because everyone else, that sounds like crazy stuff. So I'm going to tell you no. But th- when I did that, the big crazy thing happened was a whistleblower came out. The guy that actually stole my stuff came out in 2014, called me up crying, saying, I ruined your company. I destroyed your company. What we do is we, we work with the FBI on child pornography. And uh, we're, 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 we're an agent of theirs. We work with them. And, and we find these files. And what we've been doing is we've been stealing these files from companies and you. And we take the metadata from the child pornography files we get when we're working with the FBI. And we, we put them on the file. And we call people up like you, your executives, and say, hey, we found your stuff in cyberspace. It's floating, probably stolen by, you know, some peer-to-peer criminal when actually it's us. And the reason he did that was because Forbes and the Wall Street Journal had reported that my company had closed three months before, and he, we also had subpoenaed him, not knowing that he didn't know any of this. 
And the FCC had sued me, and the case had started with the depositions. So the pressure came on, and he said his boss, the head of Tyversa, the one that called me, had told him, you have to lie in your depositions, and he refused. So they started attacking him. They started projecting on him. They started stalking him, intimidating him, making all the employees think that he was the bad guy. Um, Insane stuff. And what I didn't know was, I mean, what he told me is, and I had seen the fact that this, this guy had been at some congressional and, uh, hearings. And so I, which had blown me away in researching who the heck person was, I found him with, with Wesley Clark on his advisory board and Howard Schmidt, who at the time was like the White House cybersecurity guy. And, and he's sitting in front of House Oversight and House Commerce. So I went to Daryl Issa, and, and I did not know there was some relationship between these people. And evidently this guy that was a whistleblower, Richard Wallace, you know, I, I told Issa the whole thing. And Issa called up Richard and said, uh, is what Mike Doherty said true? Because he had talked to Richard 40 times over the past few years before. <clears throat> and he said, yeah. So all these testimonies of, on, on, to the government with, with, uh, with uh, Wesley Clark sitting right there was a bogus lie. Just a complete lie. It was just we, they were lying about their software and how they can find things, and they were lying about how much stuff they found so that they could create a problem that the government would tell everyone to solve and to use this company to solve it. And in doing so, they found Supreme Court Justice Breyer's files, and then the Washington Post ran it like it was true when it was false. They, they found Obama's helicopter plan, and NBC and the Washington Post ran it all over like it was a real story when it was a lie. And what you learn about the Washington Post is it is one disgusting piece of trash because they don't vet anything, and they've got the power to cover up their incredible incompetence that's only outstretched by the size of their ego. So you will never see my company listed in any of their stories because they were part and parcel of advertising Tyversa as a good character and reporting these stories about Supreme Court Justice Breyer and Obama's helicopter plans like it's true. When if they'd done their homework, which they don't do, they would have they would have discovered it, it it wasn't true, but instead they unwittingly were priming the pump for a cyber criminal who was bamboozling every branch of the U.S. government. And so when you bamboozle the U.S. government, they do not turn around and go, "Oh my gosh, we're so sorry, Lab MD. We're so sorry, all you cancer patients. We made a terrible mistake and we destroyed your entire infrastructure. How can we make it better?" That's not what they do. What they do is they cover it up no matter what, no matter what, and whistle past the graveyard. And so that's what they did. And so it, it was fascinating. Once there was a House oversight hearing and ISA is doing everything to bring this to light, ISA is getting huge blowback, and not just from Democrats, but, you know, shame on you, Trey Gowdy and Jason Chaffetz and John Boehner, because the House oversight committee until ISA showed up, was the House cover-up committee. We all go along to get along. We yeah. pretend we're having, you know, and we, and we have these theater hearings for the public who sees it for three seconds on C-SPAN and assumes things are being done where they're not looking. 
And it's just a joke until ISIS showed up and he kicked everybody off because he went after the IRS and et cetera. So fascinating experience. I mean, it's really incredible. I've always, I've always uh, considered a Daryl as, as a pretty, pretty uh, straight arrow guy. Is that yeah. your impression? Yeah, no, Daryl, Daryl, you know, I think Daryl's a uh, hardworking, uh, big heart, very successful, try, very respectful. Uh, and and so in that instance, naive. He's a businessman, not a politician. I wish he wasn't in California. Yeah. Um, you know, I wish he wasn't in that Democratic area where his elections are so slim. Because Daryl's a great guy, but he's he's one of the few. But once again, why? Well, he's the wealthiest guy on the hill. Okay, yeah. Trump, wealthiest yeah. guy. So they can't own you. They can't own you. So they will go after you. You know, and and not just not just the other side. <laughs> I always I've, I've learned. I say, look, it's bureaucrat plus Democrat plus Rhino is a good ninety five percent of DC. Okay, yeah. so you know it's and and that's all fine and dandy if the American public knew what they were getting, but they clearly don't. And but a lot are catching on, and uh, especially we'll see what happens with how this this election pans out. Yeah, so how do you go through all this and come out without being a complete cynic and and uh, condemning the American uh, system of justice? Well, or don't I, you? I do or con- don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I am a complete cynic, and I do do condemn the American system of justice. <laughs> and I have more books than me to write, but, you know, I also have the fact of where I was raised, what I've seen, faith in God, you know. I mean, when you work in surgery for 20 years and you see people die on the table, this isn't that big a deal. And so I think I had that life experience to give me the right point of view. This was never my identity. And, and, I, and I didn't like to tell people about it because, number one, they never got it. When I first, at first I was telling my friends, Oh, I can't talk, Daryl. I or I have to talk to oversight. When you're not in D.C. and you say something like it to your friends in Atlanta, they think you it's time for a vacation. You know, so I couldn't. Even if I wanted to talk to people, I couldn't. And so I just, I just took it as um, a fascinating experience. And I knew that I could do this, and that most would want to, but couldn't. But I knew I could, and I knew that if I didn't. I would really be more mad at myself. So I've had, um, you know, if you really know me, you know that I've had a really good time. And that doesn't make it okay. I've had a really good time because I'm just giving it to them, and I'm not going away to my last breath. And I'm doing that on behalf of everyone that can't, and it's fantastic. (laughs) These people are terrible, and they do damage, and they do not care about you. And they're cowards, so they whistle past the graveyard. You know, they do not look you in the eye. They, well, but, you know, but I've had phenomenal experiences because of it. But let's let's uh, let's redeem the United States uh, because um, you tell them what you're doing now. I mean, you you've re, well, you yeah, so, you've, so we, you've um, completely uh, you've completely uh, transcended all of this difficult problem. Right, and uh, you come out ahead on that. So tell them, so tell them can, what you're doing um, now. You can get the bigger picture on, on on what happened by googling 
you know, LabMD and Business Week in 16 or the New Yorker LabMD in 2019. And there's really deep dive stories on this and more of what happened. And in my book, The Devil Inside the Beltway, which still sells as well as it did seven years ago, because it really is just, it's a narrative of how, what's it like to be investigated. Tell but, people how they get a hold of that. Uh, that's Amazon. I mean, hey, it's COVID. Where can we buy a book? Amazon. So it's, <laughs> it's an Amazon and audiobook, hardcover, softcover, and ebook. The Devil Inside the Beltway. Um, but I laugh now too how naive I was. I had a woman in Germany do that cover, where you have these eyes penetrating through the American flag, and I I just incited a riot in the FTC. <laughs> I mean, I laughed my head off because they were so mad and so offended. And I was like, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, these people are such amateurs. They don't know that you're not supposed to let your enemies know you're upset. They would let me know, and it would make my day. <laughs> and that, would, that drives these lawyer bullies crazy. You know, they live off the fear factor. They, want, they love to show up and have you quake. They love that. So when you don't, they get really upset. But I digress. Um, but it is where I have a good time. Um, so so I, I'm still fighting. We have all this litigation now, but we did win in the 11th Circuit. And then the government did award my company uh, 850,000 attorney's fees through the, through the, uh, the uh, Equal Access to Justice Act, which I always love since we spent 12 to 16 million. <laughs> so you get a check for 800,000. That's Equal Access to Justice. And um, and then, you know, I rebuilt, and now I'm moving up here, which my lawyers and friends are all, you know, I, I, I like rail against what's happening in the U.S. government, so they're, they're amused. I'm moving, moving closer. So I live in Virginia now, and I opened uh, a lab franchise uh, called Any Lab Test Now. And we, I, I now I'm sipping the whole lab. I'm just the front of collecting. And we opened just in time for COVID. And dead as a doornail for a few months, and then suddenly we got a few COVID testing machines, and I mean, it's insane how busy we are. We are so busy. So that's, um, you know, fascinating stuff. It's been, you know, we, we have, we miss about 100 phone calls a day, and when we get here in the morning, there's five people outside, and we, we test people for international travel for COVID and also for rapid testing. Well, but that shows that you can go through all this and still come out and uh you, you know you're ba- you're back in business you're you know it's it it, it is a way of it, it's a form of winning uh, mike it is you, a form of winning you can do that yeah you can still do it and that's about it. what this country's so great about Right, I, yeah. I separate the government from the country, and I separate Americans from American politicians. And it's what <laughs> Reagan would say. You know, was, Reagan would talk about how when he was in real big trouble, he, he'd go to the American people. Okay, and that's and that's the thing. It's like I'm, I'm like I just I want to be with the public and the patients and the real world. You know, the, the faces people that 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 like work hard every day and are nice to people and, you know, don't go burn down bridges when they don't get their political way. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of them. And the media doesn't report on any of that because that's not roadkill. So that doesn't sell eyeballs. So the media is so, just profit machines now to sell eyeballs and media. Money. So do you, do you think that we're now going to uh, 
that that the, the, uh, all those nice people are beginning to understand that uh, there's that there really is uh, trouble here, and that we're not. We better do something about it, and that's what's happening. Um, I, I think so, but I'm not taking it for granted because you just. I mean, look at just just. I see, it's kind of like a vacuum. Like the power people lost their mind in shock the second Hillary lost. And you look at the last four years and how they've tried to put their fists around the neck and tighten now. So look at the difference in the tech companies and the silencing and the control. And then look at the people that Biden's going to try to appoint. And it's kind of like a vacuum was created when Trump came in, and now they're just rushing back in, and they'll make damn sure that never happens again. And so I, you know, I, I tell people, look, this, is a, this was allowed to grow since Woodrow Wilson. This is a century of a bag slowly being tightened around our head that's never been in a civics book, that never has been taught, that law students don't understand. Hell, judges and I mean, I have stood in front of senators talking about this, and, and, and I won't name him, but, but I remember one guy going, I know, terrible, isn't it? <laughs> and this is a good guy, by the way. You know, I mean, it's 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 um, it is. I think you know, I wrote my book with humor because you have to have a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. Because I think it's too much to take if you knew how bad it was. And and I, but I do think we have to. And I think the public doesn't know what to do. And um, but the there, first thing they have to do is they have to understand there's a problem. But that's just the first inning, my friend. Have you uh, been? Have you uh, listened to uh, the uh, any of these these uh, uh, Giuliani led? Uh, uh, I I have you know I'm I'm thankfully so busy in the lab that I have my friends that just keep me going you know because you get in the the center but you know people are I mean I can tell it all that stuff. People scream crazy, crazy, crazy. And all I tell you is I remember back to the before he took office, but after he won, and when he said on the weekend on a tweet that the FBI is spying on him and how everyone started laughing their head off. And I was on a bunch of media that week. And they would say, what do you think of that? And I said, I would think uh, one thing. I, that guy is not stupid, and it sounds crazy, but that guy's not stupid. So I, if it, wasn't, if it was anyone else but Trump, but because people only go by their own experience. Right, and if I run around saying how bad I know this evil act, people shut down from that. It's just too much, you know. But because we're so trusting and in that sense naive, and we've been kept that way, it's not our fault. We're not stupid. We're ignorant. Americans are not stupid. You know, we've been made ignorant because we've slowly had this education taken away from us, and our, our, our civics books just if if we're taught by it. You know, thank you, Jimmy Carter, for the Department of Indoctrination. Um, you know, if we're taught it, we're taught, you know, they've just stripped it of all reality. Uh, you know, so we're sitting here like sitting ducks, knowing something wrong, and then we don't know what to do. Well, if you feel helpless and powerless, that's how they want you. They want us divided and conquered. That's what they want. And um, and so they, they throw out these red herrings. They throw out all these. They want us fighting amongst ourselves. They do that. You know, we got Antifa and we got Soros involved. And, you know, we got the media. These people are, um, they're just a sideshow. And it'll take a while, but I, I don't think the genie can go back in the bottle. And, 
you know, but we do have to have some people start to truly educate what truly goes on because it is the complete opposite of what, I mean, people don't know what they're enabling. These people that go, oh, you know, I just just want everything calm. And, you know, and Trump is so, you know, he just stirs the pot so much. And I was like, right, you want it quiet, like a cemetery. Because <laughs> that's yeah. what it is. It's a cemetery. This yeah. is a democracy. We're supposed to be fighting. We're supposed to be working things out. That's a good thing. You want peace and quiet. So I just want you to know you're in a cemetery. Just now, can you do you have the integrity to understand that? Of course you don't. You don't want to know. You want to be comfortable. You want to take this for granted. You don't want to know who died for your freedom. You don't want to know. You don't want to know how bad it is. You 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 just want to go to work and have your nice comfortable place because we all have such good lives here and good health, and you just take that for granted so that the later generations don't have any of it. And and you know I would say I was pretty much part of that crowd until I was in my late 30s, and then you know I voted for Al Gore and a couple friends of mine just went completely ballistic and told me off. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're we're out of time, and I want to thank right. you for uh, for a very. Uh, entertaining as well as instructive uh story and and uh i think the 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 event the the, uh bottom line is in spite of everything you've still got your sense of humor you've still got your freedom and uh and you're doing pretty well in terms of coming back in the business world so yeah it is the best uh, revenge isn't it yes so (laughs) so it's 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 a happy ending of of a long sad story and uh, you're listening to the Dr. Larry Show, and we're saying good night, and God bless America, all of it. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.